0: A couple months ago, I shared with you some information about this curious product called fish sauce. And uh, fish sauce is essential to a lot of Asian cooking. And uh, I learned to like fish sauce during the time that I spent working on the loss when we were in Southeast Asia. And uh, it's a core ingredient. An essential addition without which the dish will not taste as it should. But, full disclosure, it's nasty. And this week I was reminded of it. I I took a bottle of fish sauce out of the refrigerator. I was going to add it to some food. And I opened the lid and once again, it was just the smell almost knocked me over. And I thought, again, even though I know it, even though I've eaten, even though I'm aware of it, I thought, can this really be intended? For human consumption. Am I really going to eat this. And ingest it. And not only so. But am I going to enjoy the process. The miracle is yes. And by the time it's mixed into. The other ingredients. It really does taste good. It changes the entire dish. So for these specific dishes. We could say that fish sauce is the core. It's essential. But at the same time. It gives offense. It is offensive. It smells really bad, and because of that smell, at least to the Western olfactory sense, many people refuse to use it, and they're turned away. Today in Acts, we're going to be reading Paul's last long address, his last long speech. And in this speech, we're going to observe both the core, but also the offense of the gospel we'll see the core the essential foundational principles that form the truth of christ but we're also going to see that those same cores to humanity are a bad smell to many they give offense and because of them people will choose to reject the truth and they'll turn away from god but for those who are willing to repent to receive and accept these core pillars of the gospel The truth itself becomes their salvation, their peace, and their hope. However, before we begin this, there are some events that I need to summarize that have gone before. You recall that we're in our sprint to reach the end of Acts by next Sunday. Last week, we left Paul in prison after his defense in front of the Sanhedrin. During the night... The Lord stands near Paul and encourages him, saying, take courage. And then God says, he, is go- he, God, is going to see him faithfully through to Rome. Remember from the beginning of Acts, we've been looking at these concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the ends of the earth. And Rome, to the Jerusalem mind, was the end of the earth. It's also the center of the empire. And the gospel now will have traveled from its birth in Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And God's guaranteed this to Paul. You're going to get to Rome. You're going to preach the gospel in Rome. But after that night, more than 40 Jewish men formed a plot to assassinate Paul. And they took an oath that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Spoiler alert. Scripture doesn't tell us what happened to these men. But suffice it to say, if they were faithful to their vow, they would have died shortly afterwards. Because Paul survives. Somehow, Paul's nephew hears about the plot, and he advises the Roman commander. And the commander transfers Paul to Caesarea. Caesarea was the seat of Roman government in Palestine. And he sends Paul with a huge armed escort. You know how here in Sao Paulo, we often see cars um, that are security vehicles and on the side is written Escolta Armada, you know, armed escort. Those are nothing compared to what the Roman commander sent with Paul. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. So 470 armed Roman soldiers sent to guard and transport this missionary of the gospel. And as I said last week, Rome herself is now supporting missions. Rome herself, the empire, the pagan empire of the day, has now begun to protect Paul, the very one who's going to take the gospel to the heart of the empire. It's, it's really incredible. And, and so Paul arrives in Caesarea, And he stands trial before the Roman governor there, whose name was Felix. And Felix is actually intrigued by Paul. He's somewhat interested in the gospel, and he finds the whole situation disturbing and fascinating at the same time. And so for the course of two years, he keeps Paul in prison, but he keeps visiting with Paul from time to time. Part of the time, he's hoping that Paul will give him a bribe. But the other time he's just interested in what Paul has to say. But this goes on for two years until finally Felix is recalled to Rome and he leaves Paul in prison for the next governor to have to deal with. And this governor's name is Festus. And Festus arrives and he interviews Paul. And after interviewing Paul, Festus is basically saying to himself, I have no idea why this guy is in prison. And Paul was a Roman citizen. He had appealed to Caesar, which was the right of every Roman citizen. In other words, he had the right to be tried only by Caesar himself. In Portuguese, and Brazil, it would be something akin to someone in political power who has foro privilegiado, as we call it, the right to appeal and be judged only by the Supreme Court. So each Roman citizen had this right. Paul has appealed to Caesar. But the Governor Festus, is in a really complicated situation. Because he's saying, I do not understand why this man is in prison. I don't understand why he's in trial. And I'm embarrassed to send him to Caesar without sending any charges against him. And so he invites the puppet king of the Jews. His name was Herod Agrippa. He invites him to hear Paul as well. Because Festus says, "Look, I'm pretty sure all these accusations have something to do with the intricacies of Jewish religious law, which I don't understand. So King Agrippa, please come listen to this man with me. Maybe you'll be able to understand the charges. You can then explain them to me so that when I send Paul to Rome, I'll have some accusation to send him with. Otherwise, I'm going to like,, excuse me. Otherwise, I'm going to look like a fool before Caesar. So this is where we pick up our story. Paul, the missionary, the prisoner, he's prepared to speak before the Roman governor Festus and before the Jewish puppet monarch Agrippa. And I'll be picking up the reading in Acts, or in the sprint, um, in Acts 26, beginning with verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country, and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and can testify, if they are willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now, it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now, I'm going to skip forward in the reading down to verse 19. The intervening verses are Paul telling once again for the fourth time in Acts what happened to him on the road to Damascus when he was encountered by Christ. So picking up in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That's why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long? I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Though Paul's speech is fairly long, as you just noticed, and that was with skipping parts of it, it centers in verse 23, where he presents the three pillars that form the core of the gospel. What does verse 23 say? That the Messiah would suffer, as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. What are those three pillars? The cross, the resurrection, and the universal offer of salvation. One more time. The, the cross, the resurrection, the universal offer of salvation. So let's begin with the cross. Paul says that the Messiah had to suffer. Not just that he did, but that he had to. The death of Jesus was and is absolutely essential to the gospel. But why? Why did Jesus have To die. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22, the author writes something that most of you have heard many times. It's talking about Jewish ceremonial law. And the author writes The law requires that everything be cleansed with blood. But then he completes it. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So we often think of forgiveness being free. Forgiveness isn't free. Forgiveness has been paid for. But it is paid for by the person who forgives. The only payment that will satisfy sin is blood. Meaning death. All humanity is sinful So the only way that our sin can be paid for and and the word, the theological word that we use for that payment is called atonement. The only way that our sin can be atoned for is by death. It's a debt that must be paid. So either a person is going to pay it themselves. So either I pay for my sin with my own death and in context... Remember, I've shared this with you before, when scripture speaks of death as it relates to a result of sin, it is both the physical and the spiritual death, the spiritual complete separation from God for eternity in eternal torment. That's how sin is paid for. And here's the core of the gospel. As I said, you must pay for your sins with your own blood, your death, both spiritual and physical. But someone else who is not sinful may pay that debt for you. Someone else who doesn't have, who doesn't have to satisfy the blood requirement for their own sin because they are sinless can offer their blood instead of yours. And that's the significance of the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, sinless, submitted to the will of the Father, and paid with his blood and with the brokenness of his body and his death for the sins of humanity. It's the first pillar of the gospel. The second pillar that contributes to the core of the gospel is the resurrection. The reality is that the cross and the resurrection should not be seen as two separate events, but rather as two sides to one whole. Because without resurrection, the cross is meaningless. Everyone dies, right? And a lot of people died on Roman crosses. So the only thing that makes Jesus' death on the cross unique is that it was followed by a resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection, our faith is completely empty and meaningless. Paul, this same Paul, writes about the essential nature of the resurrection in the letter, the first letter, That he wrote to the Corinthian church. In chapter 15 verse 12. This is what Paul writes about the resurrection. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection of the dead. Then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised. Our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that. We are then found to be false witnesses about God for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile you are still in your sins. The resurrection is absolutely central and essential to the gospel. In fact, Paul argues that it's because of the resurrection that he's on trial. Without the resurrection, there's no salvation. Without the resurrection, there's no hope. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just a Jewish man, one of thousands, tragically executed by the Roman Empire through crucifixion. But when the resurrection is paired with the cross, then Jesus is revealed as the Son of God, the King of kings, the firstborn from the dead, the Lord of heaven and earth, death and grave swallowed up in his victory, and there's no power that can control, contain, or restrain him. The third pillar forming the core of the gospel is the universal offer of salvation. The way Paul says it is that he, Paul, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Jew and Gentile. That's a way of saying all people. I have a question for you I want you to consider. Today, in your daily life here in the city of Sao Paulo, what do you imagine is the question that is most commonly asked between people? Now, as my sample size, I am using the conversations that I have with, in the elevator at my apartment building. Because in almost every elevator ride, which for me is going to be about 11 floors with friends or neighbors, by the end of that ride, I may not know their name. I might not know anything else about them. But I know if they've been vaccinated and which vaccine they received, and if they had any side effects. And I will have been asked if I have been vaccinated yet. In, in our building anyway, in our condominium, that's the most common question. ¿Ya <laughs> vacina? And then the following ones, you know, qual and sequelas. You know, which one and what were the after effects. And of course, all of us are aware of the stories that we read in the news or perhaps from individuals about you know different vaccination locations that run out of the vaccine while people are still in line, or supplies that are not keeping up with the demand, or how it was limited at first to particular professions and then limited by age, uh, about who has access, about people who unethically get in line ahead of others, either because they know someone or they pay somebody, and people wanting to choose exactly which vaccine they get. Anyway, it, the point I'm making is that so far, the offer of this coronavirus vaccine here in Brazil has been limited. It's not really open yet to anybody that wants to receive it. Now, when it comes to the offer of salvation from sin and death, God's offer of salvation is unlimited. It is for all people. And the way Paul describes this is by saying it's for Jew and Gentile. And notice that I said it is offered. I didn't say it was given. Because though salvation is freely offered through faith in Jesus, his death and his resurrection, not everyone will accept that offer. You've heard me quote John 1.12 many times, but here it is yet one more time. Yet to all who did receive him, John is writing about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So this verse affirms both the total offer of salvation, but also the limited acceptance of that salvation to all who did receive him. That means salvation is freely offered to all. No one who comes to Jesus in repentance and faith will ever be turned away. So the soul that comes, repentant of their sin believing that Jesus is the Son of God and that his death on the cross paid for their sin, no soul that comes under those conditions to God will God ever say to that soul, "Uh, sorry, this isn't for you. Or, I'm sorry, I don't have any doses of salvation left. I've already given them all. Or my supply of salvation has run out. To all who receive him and believe in him, Whether Jew or Gentile, the gospel is offered to all people. The cross, the resurrection, and the universal offer of salvation, three pillars that form the core of the gospel. But as I said at the beginning, these core pillars, though true, often cause great offense. For a variety of reasons, people reject these incredible gifts offered to them. So first, the cross In context here in Acts, the cross was offensive mainly to Jews. How could their long-awaited Messiah suffer and die? How? Why? How could the man that was promised over and over and over by the prophets not only refuse to overthrow the hated Roman occupiers, but instead actually submit himself to execution at their hands? The Jewish people for generations, for hundreds of years, since Abraham, were hoping, believing, and praying for a Messiah who would be powerful on earth, powerful to destroy Rome, powerful to reestablish Jewish sovereignty, and renew the Davidic line of kings. They couldn't even conceive of the utter humiliation of a weak Messiah, at least weak their eyes. Or of a Messiah that was more concerned with eternity and the human heart than with Rome and the Jewish throne. The offense of the cross. And then we have the offense of the resurrection. This, The resurrection was offensive primarily to Romans and other Gentiles. Note that in speaking before Agrippa, so in this context, Paul is addressing himself to the Jews. He asks them, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises from the dead? It was a very small minority of Jewish society that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were called the Sadducees, and they were in the great minority. For the average Jew who had been re- raised in the belief of an almighty God, One who called Abraham, one who gave Abraham a miraculous son, who made the sun stand still in the sky for Joshua, who parted the Red Sea, who delivered his people from Exodus, who sent the ten plagues, who defeated the nations of Canaan and performed innumerable other miracles on behalf of his people. This God's power or ability to raise from the dead was never in doubt. They believed this. They accepted that God had the power to raise from the dead. But to a Roman, that's absolutely ridiculous. The cross, no problem. Lots of people die on a cross. There's nothing unique about that. And the empire executed tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands over the years. But to claim that a man who had suffered crucifixion, who had bled out there on a cross... Who had died and whose death was attested by people who were very familiar with death. Who was buried in a tomb that was sealed with a Roman seal. That that man somehow came to life again, got out of the tomb and founded a new religion. Pure insanity. And we see this in the governor's response. What does Festus say? He doesn't just say it, he shouts it. When Paul gets to the part about the Messiah rising, arising from the dead, I can only imagine Festus leaps to his feet and says, shouts, he shouts, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. In other words, he's saying, Paul, it's obvious that you're highly educated, so the only way you can make such a stupid claim is if you're going crazy. The offense of the resurrection. And I think that we encounter this kind of offense a lot um, in contemporary society. The idea that someone really and truly rose from the dead, that Jesus was a real person, that he really died, that's easy to believe, but that he was raised from the dead after crucifixion, and that he still lives today. Um, that's offensive, isn't it? What does it offend? Well, it offends our sense of natural law that that which is dead stays dead. To some, it might offend their sense of science or their, their sense of experience. Everyone that I've ever known on earth who has died has not risen. So, you know, our, our, our experience would tend to say that this is not the case. So, the, the resurrection is offensive. But how about the final pillar, the fact that Christ universally offers his death and resurrection as payment for the sin of anyone who would come to him? Why is it offensive that the gospel would be offered to all people? Well, we know that was offensive to the Jews because it included the Gentiles. It put the Jews and Gentiles on equal footing. We've seen this repeatedly in Acts. I don't need to focus in on it anymore here. I think that the offense of the universal offer of salvation is also a universal offense because of how salvation is received. Note what Paul says in verse 20. He's talking about preaching to Jews and Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Yeah, repentance. Repentance is offensive. Repentance means admitting that we are sinful. It means admitting that we need something or someone beyond ourselves to save us from the consequence of our own sin. And it means surrendering all that we are into the care of Jesus Christ. In our fallen human nature, the pride of self reigns. Self is on the throne. And self never wants to be told what to do. Self never wants to be in submission to authority. Self never wants to be humbled or choose the humility of repentance. For those of you who have children or who have been around children, who have raised children, have you ever had a child that from the time they're very small, they just can't wait to obey, that say to you in the morning, Mom, Dad, just give me a bunch of things to obey today. And I really want to obey without understanding why. And I want to obey cheerfully and happily And sacrificially, just give me stuff to obey. I want to spend my day surrendering and submitting to your loving care and authority. Of course not. Why? Because children are children. They're people. And as we grow into adults, we become a little bit more subtle in the way we express self. But it's no less real. And self never wants to be humbled. Self never wants to be anywhere but in first place. So when a soul encounters Jesus, Jesus will always lead that soul first to the cross. And we have this idea that the cross was only for Jesus, but the cross is for Jesus and for anyone who will follow Jesus. Jesus said it himself, if anyone will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why? Why, What does it mean, take up my cross? Because at the cross, our sinful nature, our self, dies with Jesus through repentance. So that we may rise with Jesus as new creations. Yeah, we want the rising in the new creation, but we don't want the repentance in death that comes first. But that death of self is so offensive to the pride of humanity. And self will fight tooth and nail to avoid the cross, to avoid repentance. And yet this is the only way by which anyone can come to salvation. And when we are first confronted with our need for repentance, it's like that stench when someone first opens the bottle of fish sauce. You're like, no way, no way. And yet this is the only way by which anyone can come to salvation, through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Faith in Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he died instead of us to pay a debt that we owed. And though the gospel is so offensive to our sinful nature, it is the beauty of life and joy and forgiveness and daughterhood and sonship to those who do repent And come to Jesus in faith. So I want to ask you this morning, will you do this today? Some of you here have never taken that first original step of repentance. Of acknowledging your sin, your irreparable brokenness. And acknowledging that Jesus is the only answer. His death and his resurrection is the only event that will be sufficient to pay for your sin. His blood shed makes forgiveness for you possible. So I want to make sure that no one who's here this morning, that no one who's listening or following along on our live stream will miss this opportunity this morning to take that step of coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. There's one last point I want to make that comes from what Paul says he preached to Jews and Gentiles. So he preached that they should repent and turn to God. But he adds something else that we haven't heard so far in Acts. That they should then demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Now, human nature is immediately prone to jump to the deeds and say, oh, I have to act like I've repented. What what do uh, repentant deeds look like? I need to do some of those. But what we miss in that context is that repentance has to come first. The deeds will not necessarily easily but naturally follow the true repentance. But we want to skip the true repentance and just get on to the deeds so it looks like we're good. I drink coffee every morning. Confession. It's the first thing I do. I prepare coffee and then I sit down to my quiet time with my mug of coffee. Now let me tell you something. When I haven't had coffee yet in the morning, if I try to act like I am awake and alert, and energetic, and joyful, it's hard, and a headache will very soon put an end to the process. But if that's what I'm doing, is I just got to pretend. I have to pretend like I've had coffee. I'm going to suffer. I'm not going to be able to carry it through. But if I have my coffee first, then I don't have to fake The energy and the joy and the alertness and the awakeness. And at a later date, we can talk about caffeine addiction and you can counsel me. (laughs) But in a similar way, we want to act outwardly as though we have repented inwardly, even when we haven't. For those who have taken that first step of true repentance, of acknowledging before Jesus our sinfulness, as we continue our life with Christ, we are going to sin at other times. And we're always going to be tempted to cover up that sin, to not genuinely repent, because repentance means leaving it behind. And we like our sin. So we want to keep that a secret and we want to act like we've repented, so that, you know, for the English to see, as they say, um, direct translation from Portuguese for those puro ingles v just if you need that help with that. We want everyone else around us to say, I have to take advantage of these things while I still am here in Brazil because in a couple weeks I can't, I can't make those trans, translations anymore. So we want to fake it without the true repentance. We want to guard our sin, but still have the benefit of others around us thinking that we are walking in the light. And that's impossible over the long haul We want to act or pretend to be forgiving on the outside when we have not repented of unforgiveness on the inside. We want to act loving when we have not repented of bitterness. And we want to act joyful when we haven't repented of harboring anger and hatred toward others. So we are invited to come to the cross Those who have already been there and those who need to go there again. Not to be saved again, but to continue to walk in repentance. And then we no no longer have to fake the deeds of repentance that follow. And we come to the joy of the communion table this morning. I don't know if there's a better illustration enactment that the church participates in which so clearly illustrates both the offense and yet the core of the gospel I mean we are talking about ingesting elements that represent the body and blood of Jesus is that not offensive I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you once again. I remember, I don't know how old Micah was, but Micah, my younger son, raised in the church, been in the church since he was an infant, has sat through, awake or asleep, many, 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 many rehearsals of communion. And it wasn't until he was three or four, I don't remember exactly how old, maybe five, and he was kind of in that, you know, torpor, trance that kids can get into when the preacher's going on too long. And suddenly, in communion, he jerks up. And he says, that's blood? That's offensive. We've heard this so many times that it loses its poignancy. But it is the blood and flesh of Jesus sacrificed for us, that offensive cross that makes possible for us the resurrection. And this is what we proclaim as we celebrate communion. Paul says, Scripture, that we proclaim, in communion we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. That day seems nearer and nearer. So as we prepare to receive communion together, I invite you to be in silence before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. And if there is a way that you are avoiding repentance, but still trying to pretend to show the fruit of repentance, if the Holy Spirit points that out to you, then this is an opportunity to confess and repent of it. And let's, let's allow the Holy Spirit to purify our minds and our hearts and even our bodies as we prepare to receive communion so that we can receive it in a pure manner, in a united manner, a joyful manner. Let's be in silence in the presence of the Lord.